Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney, if we haven't met before. And uh, so you'll have to bear with me. Something that has been just bugging me uh, all week long. Um, I've never done this before that I can think of, uh, but I'm going to do it today. Yeah, I said some things last week that were just flat out wrong. Um, And I didn't receive any nasty emails um, it, but it, it, it really, it, it bothered me. I mean, I, they're just mistakes. And one of them I, I said at the beginning of the sermon was I didn't know if Jesus, I didn't think he was ever referred to as the son of Moses and the son of Abraham. Well, I mean, all you have to do is turn to the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. And the very first line of Matthew's gospel is, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then all you have to do is uh, likewise turn to the Gospel of Luke. And there, there too, he is referred to as the, as the son of Abraham. Um, and that's you know, slightly embarrassing. <laughs> but you know, later in the sermon, I made a comment. I said that for most of us in this room, the only covenant we've entered into is the covenant of marriage. Is that true? No, no it's not true. Actually, I mean, every one of us, if, if we're Christians— we're in a covenantal relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, part of our baptism, that is a crucial aspect of our baptism because our baptism is a covenantal sign. And we have, as disciples of Christ, you know, commitments, responsibilities, obligations to our Lord with accompanying rich, massive, wonderful blessings. And so, again, I, like, I don't know what I was thinking, but, but I was wrong, and, and, and I apologize um, I, I really do take, I, and I think you know this, I hope you know this, I, I, I try to be very intentional with what I say on Sunday mornings, and I take seriously J- James 3.1, where it says, you know, uh, be on guard, my brethren, for not many of you should, should be teachers, for we know that those who are teachers will be judged more severely. And those are very sobering words for, for guys like me who get up every Sunday, so... Um, I was reading an article this week by Tim and Kathy Keller on dating, and they said something that, that deeply resonated with me. They said, the best, quote-unquote, best Christians are ultimately the chief repenters. That is, they are quick to see and admit their faults unbegrudgingly and to seek forgiveness from God and others. They go on, this readiness to repent and accept forgiveness is perhaps the key virtue, if you can call it that, that you should be looking for in yourself and any potential spouse. If both of you have it, then the sins and incompatibilities any two sinners will have cannot overthrow you, and you'll be able to grow in love for each other despite them. And that, you know, that applies to something far more than dating compatibility. That's the type of person um, I hope you want to be. You know, one who quickly and unbegrudgingly recognizes your faults. And that's certainly the kind of person, you know, I want to be. And it's, it is tangentially related to this bleak passage that we're going to uh, read today. I mean, David has an enormous amount to repent of. Um, and in fact, I'm going to unpack it. So you, you probably don't even know the half of it. Um, it's very bleak, but there... There is a great, you know, note of grace as well. So let's read it. Now, I'm really, really grateful I get to, to preach this passage. I mean, many of you know this passage. It's so famous. 
Um, We read this, that in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him and he slept with her. Parenthetically, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace um, with a gift from the king. A gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. But then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob Beshan? Beshan? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in, in Thebes, Thebes? <laughs> Why did you get so close to the wall? And if he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. <clears throat> the messenger set out, and when he had arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
And David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done, I think the literal translation of the last line is the best. It says in the Hebrew, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There has been quite a bit of debate over what exactly happened between David and Bathsheba and whether it should be characterized as rape. That's in fact the word that John Piper, no less a pastor, used to describe this incident in a sermon several years ago. Did David rape Bathsheba? The details of the story don't seem to fit the narrow definition of rape that is given in the book of Deuteronomy, namely of a physical force and violence and of a victim who is crying out in anguish. Yet I think you probably agree with me. I mean, by a modern, a contemporary definition of rape, uh, it, it, it seems to fit that. I mean, this woman is, she's 30 years younger than David is. And, and he's no ordinary citizen, is he? He's the king. Um, I mean, there's such a power imbalance between the two parties. I'm going to talk about that quite a bit more next week in chapter 12. There's such a power indifference, though. I mean, what kind of choice did, what, what choice did she have? I mean, isn't there, isn't there an unmistakable element of coercion that is involved here? <clears throat> now, I know that's a very blunt way to start a sermon. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized we don't want David to be a rapist. In fact, we actually find it easier to stomach him being a murderer than an abuser of women. What does that say about us? It's very interesting if you, when you study the passage uh, to observe the differences between the way older commentators and commentaries uh, treat Bathsheba versus newer commentators and, and commentaries. The older commentators, by and large, point an accusing uh, finger at her and, and, you know, victim blamer. Uh, ask questions like, well, what was she doing bathing up there and, and then? Um, and, and didn't she willingly come to the palace when the, when the king summoned her? It's very interesting. Uh, another exercise you could do uh, to study and observe the way that she's de- depicted in art. So you go back to 1635, the Baroque painter... Peter Paul Rubens, um, he depicts her as this sensual, eager nude. 
In fact, almost all of the paintings of Bathsheba are of her in the nude. Rembrandt's portrayal of her, which is located in the Louvre, paints her as this voluptuous, very nude woman, but um, with a little different spin. She looks almost forlorn, downcast, or, or conflicted. Uh, the bulletin art on the front of your, your bulletin cover today, uh, notice that I didn't go there. <laughs> you know, if I tried to, and I did, I looked everywhere for a fitting um, depiction of David and Bathsheba. Instead, the best I could find was medieval Uriah in his knight's armor. I'm sure that's exactly what he looked like, right? A modern author, Dana Gresh, in a popular guidebook for modesty among young women, asks the question aloud, why don't we talk about Bathsheba's sin? Gresh speculates that Bathsheba was lonely and wanted to be watched. She compares her to contemporary women who wear too skimpy of clothing and show too much skin. Another modern writer goes on to chastise Bathsheba for her public nakedness, saying, David may have initiated, but she was asking for it. Again, what does that, what does that say about us? Thankfully, there, there has been a shift in uh, commentaries through the years, and now the majority of modern commentaries point out that this whole Bathsheba, the temptress narrative, is just a, a bunch of you know, hogwash, <laughs> to put it mildly. It's, it's hogwash. So why was she bathing on the top of the roof? The answer is because that's where you commonly bathed back then. You know, it's up above, out of regular eyesight, away from street level, away from you know, wandering eyes. It was just a common place that you bathed. It wasn't her fault that her roof happened to be just shorter than you know, one other roof in the city, the king's palace. And do you know, why was Bathsheba bathing at all? Well, you get a hint of it at the end of verse 4, that parenthetical comment. Uh, she was bathing on a roof because she was taking, she was fulfilling the ceremonial law. She was, she was taking a purification bath at the end of her menstrual cycle. And there's another hint of it. You know, the mention of the time of the bath in the evening. Well, in the ceremonial law, your seven-day impurity ended at sunset in the evening on the seventh day, which was to be concluded with a ritual bath. So look, if David was merely a weak man who fell prey to a tempting woman on a lonely night... That's one thing. That's one narrative. But, but that's not this narrative. This narrative, this is honestly the, 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 the disgusting reality that David was like a dirty old man, a leering voyeur, a peeping Tom, whose lust was nearly incestuous. Now what you may not know, I didn't know this, but... Uh, it just so turns out Bathsheba was, she wasn't just anybody either. She was the, great, the granddaughter of one of David's, David's closest advisors who shows up 
repeatedly in First and Second Samuel, Ahithophel. She was his granddaughter. She would have most likely grown up in the royal court. It, it's not far-fetched in the least to, to imagine, you know, Uncle David uh, playing games with her when she was a little girl. Um, as I said, she was much younger than he was by about 30 years. No, I mean, the reality, at least to me, <laughs> the reality is, is disgusting. Even more so, as the story continues, when David discovers that Bathsheba was pregnant, he calls Uriah back from the front lines of, of what was the Ammonite War. Uriah the Hittite, he wasn't any old ordinary guy. Do you know anything about him? Well, he was referred to as one of David's, was it 30 or 40, mighty men. Um, when David was a fugitive on the run from King Saul, a group of friends voluntarily came forward to surround him and protect him from their enemy. And these were called his mighty men. These were his blood brothers. These were his blood brothers. These were men who, who risked their lives so that David might live. When Uriah comes back from the battlefield, David sends him home, expecting that he will sleep with Bathsheba and therefore cover all traces of their sexual liaison. Um, but the key here is Uriah won't go. See, when Israelite, when she, when Israel was fighting her battles, every Israelite warrior knew that they were engaged in a holy war, and therefore they took a, a vow of sexual abstinence during during the entirety of the battle to make sure that they were like in a state of ritual purity. They were not unclean, and therefore um, Uriah wanting to maintain the vow that he had made to God, refuses to go home and be with his wife. I mean, even after David gets him drunk, gets him loaded, he still refuses to break that, that vow. Um, think about this. When David sent for Bathsheba, do you, think, do you think he felt like an adulterer or a rapist? No. He felt like a lover. And what could be better than that? That's just one example of um, the fog of sin. We'll, we'll see it again in just a minute. But if you step back, kind of the 30,000 foot view of this passage, here is what you discover. We have a righteous woman who is trying to fulfill the ceremonial law. We have a righteous husband who is who who is determined to fulfill his vow he made to God. And we have the king of Israel who covets the woman, sleeps with the woman, kills the husband, lies about it, covers it up. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. Has false gods. The God of his. And so you have... King David breaking, explicitly breaking like six of the Ten Commandments in this one, you know, horrible, horrible ordeal. Um, truly, he has become a king like all the nations. I mean, he's become as bad as King Saul. 
Yeah, as I said, um, David is in the fog of sin. He's not thinking clearly. Some of the indicators, for instance, isn't it strange that he would fill out Uriah's death warrant, seal it in an envelope, and hand it to Uriah to carry back to the battlefield? Isn't that a little chancy? I mean, I mean, wouldn't Uriah? There are some notes in the passage like Uriah might have an inkling that something fishy is going on. Um, that might be there. He could have opened that and read about it. Isn't that a strange way of behaving? Um, regarding this conspiracy, isn't part of the point of a conspiracy to limit the number of people who are involved in it so that you have fewer people who could spill the beans. And yet, by having uh, Joab's plan, all these other soldiers who go up forward and then are very quickly pulled back. I mean, all of these soldiers would have been asking themselves, why would Joab give such idiotic and murderous instructions? Um, the, The point being that it's such a clear example of how sin makes us crazy as hell. And you've, you've probably seen that in, in your life. You've certainly seen it in the lives of others. When, when you are just in deep, there is a, there's just a, a delusional fog that characterizes the entirety of your life. <clears throat> but all of it was arranged. All of it was arranged. In October 1944, German Field Marshal Irvin Rommel was told that everything had been arranged in Berlin. Rommel had just been implicated in a plot against Hitler, but because of his successful military service in Africa, he was being given the the kinder, gentler option of taking taking poison. Should he not consent to take the poison? Who knows what might happen to his family? But this way, if he goes quietly, they would all be granted a pension after he died. He only needed to drive off with two generals, take the poison, and in 15 minutes, his wife would receive a call from the local hospital informing her that her husband had died of a cerebral embolism. It would all be a lie, but it had been arranged. So had the grand state funeral on Rommel's behalf. Hitler wired Frau Rommel asking her to accept my sincere sympathy for the heavy loss you have suffered. The, the head of the Luftwaffe joined Hitler in assuring the widow that the fact your husband has died a hero's death um, has resulted in a wound that we have all deeply felt. And you know what? We, we expect that kind of sham and oppression in Nazidom, don't we? But I mean, this is Israel. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the man who last week put Mephibosheth at his table and puts Uriah in his grave. I mean, doesn't it say something to us about the, just the power of sin? <laughs> um, I'll talk more about that again. Um, next week. Let me just make two comments before proceeding. Uh, So if you do any study about King David, you will know that there is a body of scholarship out there which says that that King David either never existed or the stories, the, the David of the Bible is largely a fictional creation 
of a later national tradition in Israel. Like the stories of David, we cannot trust. These cannot be the case. But, but if you were going to fabricate a story about your, your leading king, I mean, think about American history. We have stories about bad George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. Like that's the level of the, the, bad, the bad stories we have. Why would you fabricate this story? I mean, isn't this an indicator? It is. It's an indicator that the, the Bible is being honest with us. And, and if you're one of those people who you really, you doubt the historical reliability of the Bible, I mean, I can't, this is one of the most powerful places in the Bible ever to be found to say, I am telling you the truth. And the truth is ugly, beyond, beyond our wildest description, ugly. Um, another comment, and, and it's simply, don't we at times feel just overwhelmed by the weight of our own sin? We feel like complete and utter failures. Um, we got nothing on David. <laughs> Like, is, is, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad it has been, like if there was grace that could be given to David for what he had done, um, you know, if you ask yourself the question, how can God for, forgive me after, after this or that, and you call yourself all kinds of bad names, I, I do that sometimes. Um, it's remarkable, the grace that, that meets such wickedness in this passage. All right, the next thing I would like us to do is, if you would, turn back in your bulletin to Psalm 51. It's, it, it may be premature of me to go to Psalm 51 today. Maybe I should have waited until next week when I preach chapter 12. It, there was about nine months from the end of chapter 11 to the time when Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him about his sin. And only then, nine months later, does he repent. So, and and talk, talk about you know, being quick to recognize one's faults and unbegrudging, uh, being a chief repenter. Psalm 51, in some sense, is not even an example of that because it took him nine months We'll talk about kind of his spiritual and emotional state during those nine months. But it took him nine months to get to, to this point. Um, but I, I didn't want the past, this sermon to just be totally negative. <laughs> and, um, so let's look at Psalm 51. Because this psalm, more than any other in the Bible, teaches us how to restore communion with God after we've failed him miserably. And we read in verses 1 through 3, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according remember last week the word chesed according to your chesed according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me it's a deeply personal prayer isn't it I think he ends up using the personal pronoun my, mine, in its various forms five or so successive times in just the first three verses. Um, 
David does not confess his sin in this like logical, detached, <laughs> Presbyterian manner, um, perfunctory, reading it. But I mean, he's owning it. It is mine, mine, mine. It's also clear that he, he's miserable. He speaks in verse 8 about walking around with crushed bones. That's a powerful metaphor. Crushed bones, not simply broken bones, but crushed bones. And then he speaks, what is it in verse 3 there? My sin is ever before me. It's like I cannot even escape it. it is, it's tattooed on my eyelids. Even when I close my eyes, it's still there. Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, this is always a little confusing, isn't it? Because he had sinned against a lot of other people. Um, I mean, he had sinned against, if you didn't, if you noticed, there were several other soldiers who ended up dying as a result of all of this. Uriah was not the only casualty. Like, he sinned against those wives and those families as well. So how could, he, how could he say here, against you only have I sinned? Well, possibly what he means is this. Those sins, as, as awful as they were, are, are like nothing they're nothing compared to what I, have, what I have done to you, my God. About sinning against all of the grace and the kindness that, that I, I have been shown. That's, I think that's what he's saying there. <clears throat> I think it's very important. You notice in Psalm 51, David makes no excuses. He offers no rationalizations. He doesn't mention Bathsheba's complicity which perhaps may be another indicator that coercion was involved. Um, There's none of this drivel about how my other wives weren't meeting my sexual needs. There was none of that. He says, there's only one person to blame in all of this, and it is me, it is me, and it is me. And he's owning it. Verse 5, a couple more verses. Verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is also a confusing one. Is he maintaining that it was like my mother and father's fault? That maybe he was somehow the, the offspring of some sinful sexual liaison? Um, in sin, my mother conceived me? No, what I think he's simply doing here is just, he's talking about the doctrine of total depravity. He's saying that the, my sinful behavior was not the result of uh, some out-of-character one-time event. My sinful actions were the product of a sinful nature that is in me, of a warped state of mind and heart that has been present in me from the moment I was born. For as long as I have lived, for as long as I can remember, I have done this because of that of the the corruption that was inside of me. I think David uses something like five different words to describe wickedness in this passage. He calls it sin, transgression, iniquity, stain. Later on, he calls it blood guilt. If you come up with 
half a dozen different words to describe your own sin, doesn't that indicate that you have thought pretty long and hard about it? Purge me with hyssop, verse 7, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You know, hyssop was a, a bushy branch that the priests would, they would dip it into blood, and then they would use it to sprinkle the blood. So let's say, for instance, you had a house that was mildewy, it was moldy, it was a house that was ceremonially unclean. You would call the priest, he would bring his hyssop brush, he would sprinkle the house with hyssop blood, and you would be clean. And then finally, verses 11 and 12, cast me not away from your presence, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is oftentimes spoken of as the, the powerful uh, force that, that empowers a man to fulfill whatever calling God has placed on his life. And what he is saying, I mean, he has received the Holy Spirit in abundance to fulfill his calling as king. And he's saying, please do not treat me as you did King Saul, whom you, you took away the Spirit's presence and empowering. Um, don't do with me like my predecessor. Oh, I forgot, verse 13. And then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And I, I love that. He promises to God, if you will do this for me, then I, then I promise I will learn from this and I will teach other, other people. And isn't Psalm 51 a testimony that he made good on that promise? I mean, more than any other part of the entire Bible, it was this psalm that has basically tutored people for 3,000 years on, on what to do when you've just utterly made a wreck of your spiritual life. <clears throat> All right, I know we're going a little long, but it's such a rich passage, isn't it? Um, several years ago, I preached through the book of Leviticus, and we looked at all of the different types of uh, sacrifices and offerings that were necessary to you know, cleanse you from this and, and that. So can you, do you remember, what, what, what was this, the sacrifice that you could offer if you committed adultery and you murdered another man? What, what was that sacrifice? Yeah, th there wasn't one. The entire Levitical sacrificial system was set up for quote-unquote unintentional sins. Rape, adultery, murder, not quite unintentional, are they? Like David could have, David could have sacrificed Every bull, goat, heifer, every animal in all of Israel. And it would never have you know, atoned for all of his sins. You know, I, I, hope, I hope you feel something of just the angst. At least I feel the angst. When I come to Psalm 51, when, when I especially read 2 Samuel 11... It almost feels like this is a travesty of justice. When you figure out what David has done, David had by all rights forfeited his life. Capital punishment. That's what you do with people who do that. He forfeited his life. He forfeited his throne. It almost feels like he just gets off the hook, doesn't it? It feels, 
It feels deeply unfair. That's why I entitled the sermon, When Pure Evil Meets Grace, it feels disturbing. It feels disturbing. So why does David, why does God let David off? And the mysterious answer to that question is what Paul talks about in the rest of Romans chapter 3, verse 25. That I, We did the first half of Romans 3, 25, but it goes on. Let me read it to you. What Paul says mysteriously is that many of the sins in the Old Testament God passed over until they could be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we read this. God put forth Christ as a sacrifice, as a propitiation, or aka sacrifice of atonement, to be received by faith. This was to demonstrate God's justice and righteousness because in his divine patience he had passed over the former sins. And this was also done in the present so that God may be just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, if God were merely sweeping David's sins under the rug, then we would rightly feel outraged. But that is not what he's doing. Uh, David's sins are horrific. And David's sins are met with something every bit as horrific. The sacrifice of the Son of God. And so what is happening is God sees from the time of David down through the centuries to the death of his son that Jesus Christ would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy as articulated in Psalm 51 would unite him with Christ a thousand years later. And in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness. And I'll leave you with this. Do you know anybody who needs to hear that message? <laughs> Do you know anybody who needs to, to hear this, this message of grace? Um, which is both wonderful and it's, it's disturbing. Um, I mean, doesn't it give us hope for our sins? Like, isn't it most likely that our sins in the eyes of a holy God are, are far worse than we imagine? But that grace is found in Christ, and if there's grace for such a sinner as this, there could be grace for them as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. The one thing, I want to thank you so much for the missions committee um, for putting it, our missions conference together. I, I wish more people, honestly, would have come. We probably only had about 60. But... It did something for me, and I'll tell you what it was. It, it convicted me that one of the things I just need to say to you repeatedly um, is, is we are missionaries. We are, mis- we, are, we are Christ ambassadors to take this good news to our neighbors and our friends. You, you can do it, and that's what you're called to. That's what we're all called to. Um, this is such a sweet, amazing message of grace. Who are you going to share with? Amen.